You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming. First Corinthians 13, 1-13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have fully been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. For those of you who don't know me, or those of you who are new here, my name is Justin, and I am an, an elder here at the church, as Dan said, uh, and occasionally I get the opportunity to speak to you, so I'm really excited about that and very grateful. Today we're going to be talking about love, but first I want to talk about the state of our world, because I think that it's important for us to know that or address that first before we dig into our Bible. If I'm honest... I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around all of the evil that's happening in the world today. I mean, 2020 could be the name of a horror film straight out of Hollywood. You see, people can't socialize, and if they do, they have to do so cautiously for fear that death is looming just outside their doorstep should they go outside. Local businesses are closing because they can't afford to stay open, and worst of all, Families are crying because of losing their loved ones unexpectedly. And I'm sure that you all know this evil that I'm referencing, so I'll just say it by name. Racism. You see, COVID-19 has also been painful and scary for most of us, but if you're like me and we're being honest, I'm really just frustrated and tired of fear controlling my life decisions. But unfortunately for some people in this country, that fear did not start with COVID-19, nor is it going to go away after it passes. And to clarify, this sermon is not on racism. This is a sermon on love, and I hope it's a message of love, delivered in love, and received, hopefully, in love. But I want to clarify something before we begin, because I feel like the church has recently been beaten down a lot. On one side, we feel like we're being called hateful for the things that we hold to or the principles that we have. 
Or maybe you're on the other spectrum where you feel like the church is unfairly judging you or convicting you for not doing enough. And at first glance, this sermon might feel like the latter, but I promise you that it's not. You see, I didn't choose this sermon because I looked around this room and I thought or I saw a need for it. I didn't stalk your Facebook posts and think, oh, this needs to be preached on. In fact, I didn't even choose this sermon at all. When Keith asked me to preach a couple weeks ago, I fell on my knees and I prayed. But I knew what God had put on my heart, but I prayed nonetheless. And he once again confirmed, he said, speak in the book of Corinthians. So I read through the book of Corinthians, and this is the message that he put on my heart. And so I hope that the same spirit that lives in me lives in you. And that as he put this message on my heart, he's also there in your heart to receive it. So I'm going to pray to get our hearts and minds in the right place, and then we can begin. Heavenly Father, I come to you today, and I'm humbled to stand before these people because I know that I'm inadequate and ill-prepared to do so, God. But you have called me nonetheless, and so I will be obedient to your will. Spirit, I pray that you are present in this room and that as I speak, nothing comes out of my mouth that is not from you. And if it does, Spirit, I pray that you who guards the heart will decipher what I say and tug at hearts or encourage hearts as needed. In your glory, God. Amen. So as I said, we're going to be digging into our Bibles and into the book of 1 Corinthians. So I'll give you some historical context first about the city of Corinth. The book of Acts tells us that when Paul was on his missionary journey to northern Greece, he was actually met with much persecution. And so because of that, he had to flee south. And it was while he was fleeing south that he found himself in the city of Corinth. And his message and his ministry was so successful there that he ended up staying for a year and a half. And like most churches that he either planted or visited, once he left, he wrote them a letter to either address any issues or encourage them as needed. But 1 Corinthians, as we see it today, was not Paul's first letter to the church of Corinth. We see that in chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul references a past letter that he wrote them. And while that letter is still lost, what we know from it is that it it provoked confusion and disagreement from the church of Corinth. So the church fathers got together and they wrote a response back to Paul, asking him a multitude of questions, but also asking them what they should do about a multitude of issues that they were having. And thankfully for Paul and for us, that letter, like every book in the Bible, was divinely inspired by God, so we can fully trust the answers that Paul gives the church of Corinth. And as you see on the screen here, there's a list of the, these are the big ticket items that Paul addresses to the church of Corinth. They were struggling with a lot of things, and these are the things that were so bad that Paul had to stop and address them. But before we look down upon the church of Corinth or think that they're less, if we're honest, the church in America might have a lot more in common with the church of Corinth than we might like to believe or think. And just in case you don't take my word for it, that's okay. Like I said, the Spirit put this message on my heart, but even after I'd finished this sermon a week ago, I still was praying about it. God, is this the message that you have for me? And just a couple days ago, I received an email from Dallas Theological Seminary, and it says this, and don't worry, I'm going to read it for you. I know it's small print. The beginning of it says, Dear friend, our culture so resembles that of ancient Corinth, it's as if Paul wrote his epistle of 1 Corinthians directly to us. 
And when I received this email, my, the, spirit in, the spirit inside me jumped for joy, not because this is necessarily good news, but because all of my prayers had been answered, that God is saying, the same spirit that lives in me lives in the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, and the same message that the spirit put on my heart to speak today, he had put on his heart, and he did an email blast to anyone that he could reach talking about the importance of the book of 1 Corinthians to teaching us today and highlighting even 1 Corinthians 13, as you'll see down here, as one of the main topics of the, of the courses that he's offering for free for anyone who wants to take it. And so it's my hope and prayer that the same spirit that lives in me and lives in the president lives in you and that you receive that message the same way. Because when I say that the church of Corinth is like the church in America, I don't say that to our shame. There's a lot of beautiful and incredible things about the church in Corinth that we don't usually talk about because we like to focus on the issues that they were dealing with. But what was unique about Corinth is that its location by the sea made it a hot spot for travelers and trade. So people came from all over the world or all over Europe to travel there and live there. So not only was it uncommonly diverse in its culture and ethnic backgrounds, but it was also diverse in its socioeconomic classes. We see 2% of the people that lived there owned 20% of the resources. The next 10% of the people that lived there owned the remaining 20 to 30% of the resources due to their control over taxes on trade. And what that means is that 90% of the people that lived in Corinth had to split up the remaining percent of resources that were left, and even that wasn't evenly distributed. So while few lived luxuriously, many lived barely making ends meet. And if you were to do a quick Google search of ancient Corinth, you might see the buzzwords, booming metropolitan city. But unless you dig deeper, what it likes to glance over is that ancient Corinth had a lot of issues with inequality both ethnically and uh, in its social classes. But fortunately, when Paul evangelized there, the gospel broke through all of those barriers. It broke through the barriers of language. It broke through the barriers of, of social class. It broke through the barriers of race. It was absorbed there, and it was received there with joy because of the hope that it brought. And even amongst the diversity, it gave them a common ground. That's the gospel. So what, what formed there then was that the church of Corinth was as beautifully and incredibly diverse as the city was, which is an incredible thing. But somewhere between the time of Paul leaving and 10 years later when he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, somewhere over time, and I don't think it was all at once, I think it happened over time, the church started to focus on what it did not have in common instead of remembering that the gospel gave them the common ground. And so what ended up happening was people in the church said, well, if I give more to the church, I should receive more from the church. Or if I look or dress a certain way, I should have a, a certain position in the church because they focused on what they had, um, what the difference is instead of what they had in common. So Paul addresses all of these issues. As you can see, the numbers associated with the issue is actually the chapter and verses in which Paul talks about these issues and these sins in the book of Corinthians. 
So Paul addresses these because he wanted to make sure there was no misunderstanding what God's stance was on these sins. But then after doing so, we find ourselves in chapters 12 and 13, where Paul delivers one of his most powerful messages. And the reason it's so powerful is because he says, you guys are struggling with all of these things and they're terrible, but they all have one root cause. Lack of love. Because that's what the gospel is founded on. It's founded on love. And it's what Paul brought to the, the city of Corinth, and it's what brought them together, but over time they focused on what they didn't have in common instead of what they did have in common, and they lacked love. And that caused a multitude of these issues. So I'm going to read the second half of chapter 12 into 13 so we can understand what it is that Paul addresses to the church because it's so powerful. And, and in case you're wondering... Why the second half of chapter 12? I thought this was a sermon on chapter 13. We have to be very careful to remove chapters or verses by themselves and remove them from their proper context. It was in the Bible for a reason. 1 Corinthians 13 was there, placed perfectly after chapter 12 for a reason. And as you're going to see here in a moment, we cannot, in fact, I'll even boldly claim that we should not preach on chapter 13 until the church understands first what chapter 12 was saying because Paul felt that it was so important to say that he, that he addressed it first before moving into chapter 13. So let me read for you the second half of chapter 12. It says, For just as the body is one and has many members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were baptized into the body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? And then Paul goes on to say in chapter 12, But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. <clears throat> Excuse me. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ, and individually you are members of it. So let me just summarize some of that for you, because I know that it was a lot. But through the Spirit, we are all one body, Jews and Greeks, black and white. The hand is undoubtedly different than the foot, but it's no more or less important. For God specifically created each body part to be unique, but not self-sufficient. For if the body were all hands, how would the body walk? It tells us that if one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it which is something beautiful here if you think about it, because collectively as the church, we are the spiritual body of Christ. That means the spiritual body of Christ is all different races and backgrounds and languages. It's a beautiful mixture, 
And when we are unified as the church with a body of Christ, which we all know is the ultimate goal, to live like Christ, to be more like Jesus. But individually, we are different members of him, and we should not forget that. He made us differently and unique on purpose to do different things. But I'm going to give an analogy here of somewhere that I think that we might be missing the point. If you were to stub your toe, and I mean really stub your toe, or drop something heavy on your foot, what would you do? And I'm not asking what would you say, or keep that between you and God, but I'm asking, like, what would you do? Because I know if it were me, I would grab a bag of ice, and I'd lay down on the couch, and I'd prop a pillow under my foot, and I'd put ice on that foot because it was in pain. But if in doing so, my hand cried out, hey, I matter too, I'd be like, chill out, hand. I know that you matter, but right now, my foot is suffering, and I'm going to focus on it. Yes, all body parts matter, but when the back is shot seven times because it looks different than the hand, how can the church stand quiet? If the Bible tells us that if one member suffers, we are all to suffer together, and if one mourns, we are all to mourn together, how can it be that when one member of Christ right now in our country is crying out for justice, we have other members crying out that all lives matter? Is that not unbiblical? Am I reading this wrong? Because I don't think that I am. So how are we to move forward? I mean, how are we to act? Are we to end racism? Are we to end COVID-19? Are all of us called, like I am on stage, to preach? Because I know the Holy Spirit called me to stand here before you and speak this message that he put on my heart. But he's calling all of you to do that as well? Because I can see some of you in shaking your heads, like, I'm not going on stage. Well, the good news is that the, the Church of Corinth was struggling with the same issue. And we see that. And Paul doesn't leave them standing there. No, actually, he gives them the answer. So if you look at the, uh, the next verse, the end of chapter 12, he says, And God has appointed first the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating various kinds of tongues. But are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues and do all interpret? No. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. So Paul is saying here, before we move on to chapter 13, he says, are all of you teachers? No? Good. Because I'm going to show you still a more excellent way that you can act. And then he reads chapter 13, which might be one of the most profound or at least fundamental chapters in the Bible. And so I'm going to read it again for you. It says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. 
but rejoices, uh, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I reasoned like a child, I thought like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And I could stop my sermon right here because Paul said it so sufficiently. Right? Chapter 13 says everything that needs to be said. But what I'd like to quickly point out is that when Paul tells us to love, he's not telling us, he's not talking about the westernized version of love that we've become so accustomed to thinking of. It's not a hallmark and it's not romantic. The word here for love in chapter 13 is the Greek word agape. It denotes a divine, unconditional love. And if you have the King James translation, you'll see that for chapter 13, it translates the word agape as charity instead of love because it feels like it more adequately describes what Paul, the message that Paul is trying to explain here. And C.S. Lewis, in his book Four Loves, describes this love as unconditional or also godly servitude. And the reason this book is called Four Loves is because there are, the Greek had four different words for the, for the word love. Unlike here in America in English, if I were to say I love you, that could mean a, a realm of different things. It, it could put you off because you have no idea unless you understand the context of which I'm saying what I'm trying to get at. But in the Greek, they had four very different words which meant four different very, th- sorry, four very different things. The, word, the love of empathy is storge, family and friend is philia, romantic love is eros, but unconditional love or godly service is agape. And so when Paul used the word agape in 1 Corinthians 13, he knew that the church of Corinth would know exactly what he was talking about. But in case we need some examples of what unconditional love looks like, because it might be hard to fathom what could unconditional love look like, the Bible is chock full of examples, but I'm just going to give you two. The first is in Romans 5, 8, and we just went through the book of Romans, so I think this will be even more powerful. It says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The word for love there is also the word agape. So what he's saying is God loved us so much that he sent his own son to die for our sins. And when Jesus himself was asked what the greatest commandment was, can anyone tell me what Jesus said? Love. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Can anyone guess what word for love is in the Greek? Agape. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he said agape. He said godly service. So the greatest commandment that we have from Jesus himself is to serve the Lord our God with all of our heart and to serve our neighbor as we serve ourselves. 
It's a commandment, which means he's commanding us to do this. It's not doing something that he calls us to do when it's comfortable or when it's convenient. Because I can guarantee you if Jesus' example to us of agape was dying on a cross, I guarantee you it was not convenient, nor was it comfortable for him to be crucified and tortured for our sins. But he did that because that's how much he loves us and because he was obedient to God's will. And he's calling us to love people with that same mentality. And don't get me wrong here, I am at fault here for doing things or loving people, usually when it's convenient for me. Because if I have something that's time sensitive or I'm going somewhere, sometimes I put that on the back burner. But that's not biblical. God is telling us to love first. It's the greatest commandment of all. Above working, above providing for our families, all those things are important. Please don't get me wrong. But he says the greatest commandment is to love, which is extremely humbling for me. But agape is an action, which means it's not a noun or an adjective. It's a verb. It's commanding us to actually move, to do something. Staying silent or not doing anything in the face of oppression is not just unbiblical, but it's sinful. It's for this reason that James, the brother of Jesus, in his book, chapter 2, verse 17, says that faith without works is dead. Not faith without works is like, eh, it's okay. No, it's dead. Your faith is dead if you do not have works. But he is not contradicting Paul in Ephesians when he says that we are saved by grace alone because that is 100% true. We are saved not by works, but by faith alone. But our faith, but our works prove our faith. And, and I can tell you that they agree with each other because in the book of Corinthians, chapter 13, Paul says that we are to love first and foremost, that you could give away your body to be burned. You could be crucified for your faith, and it means nothing if not done in love. Never seen before, not in my life. In 2020, we have an opportunity to love people like I've never seen before, not in my lifetime. I'm not just talking about the riots and protests, but also COVID-19. People are struggling, and they are lost, and they are hurting, and there's an opportunity for us to love and I'm not talking about ending racism or finding a cure for COVID-19. I'm just talking about finding somebody who has been affected by these things or is just hurting for any reason whatsoever and loving them, serving them. Because love is service, which means we cannot love our neighbor and never speak to them. And we cannot love the homeless or say that we love the homeless, but never physically feed them or clothe them. And we cannot love those who look different than us than if, if in their time of need and pain, we stand silent. And it needs to start today. It needs to start today, not in November. And don't get me wrong, I'm not here to talk politics. It's not my place, nor is it my desire to do so. But what I will say is something that we can all agree with. Politics cannot fix sin. Only the gospel can do that. Let us not wait for someone else to be reelected or elected for things to change in this country. The church has been called to move. The church has been called to love. The church has been called to serve. So let's do that. Let's be a people that serve. We can't put our hopes in things of this world. And to be honest with you, for people who don't know Jesus or have not placed their faith in Jesus, I don't blame them for holding their hopes to politics. Why would they not? Because even though they're severely flawed, don't get me wrong, at least they are trying to do something about feeding the homeless and giving people medicine when they need it. 
or access to things. But the Bible has called us to do that. And as a church, I think we're doing a good job. I think we try to do these things, but as individual members, right, the church is us individual members, I think we can also do a better job outside of the walls of the church on Sunday mornings. Let's give more and take less because when all else fades, only three things remain. All of your possessions will be gone. All of our voices will be gone. But the only three things that remain are faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Because at the end of the day, we are either for the gospel or we are against it. So let's be a church that is for the gospel, is for people Let's be a church that inspires hope in our community that when they need something, that when they're lost, they don't turn to politics, that they come to the church and we can provide their needs. Let's love people. And it starts at home, having a conversation. Maybe it's with your spouse, maybe it's with your family, or maybe it's just between you and God. Have a conversation about how he is calling you, how the Spirit is leading you to love more. Just the small things every day. Think of something that you can do this week, maybe this month, or even this year. There are ways that we can love better. We can't just rely on our pastors or our leaders or our president to do the loving for us. We are called as the church to do the loving. Because in a world so broken, we can all use the reminder that when all else fades, faith, hope, and love remain. Let's pray. Father God, I come to you right now, and I just am so grateful for who you are and what you're doing in this city, in this church, and in this country. Father, I pray that even despite the evil and the sin that is present, that we do not lose sight of the ultimate goal, that we do not focus more on the things that we are different than what we have in common, which is the gospel, which is your love. Father, I pray that our church loves more. I pray that the people here love more. I pray that I love more, God. Put it on my heart, God. Put it on our hearts as the church to do your service, God, to do what you have called us to do and prepared us and gifted us to do. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.